0: Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Good morning. And uh, this idea that the fastest way from A to B is to be completely at A, is, um, is I find through a very simple practice that I like to do. <clears throat> I do it in meditation a fair amount of time. I do it in meditation when my mind is, um, has other ideas besides meditating and being present, being at A. And that is uh, I, use, I say to myself the word here, H-E-R-E. And now just say it. <clears throat> and then in saying the word here, then I kind of, in a sense, kind of open myself up, my awareness up, to notice what is what appears here, right here and now. <clears throat> and then um, without the idea, hopefully without the idea that anything has to be any different. And so then sometimes I notice my body, what's happening in my body, maybe tension or Something, I might be noticing my breathing sometimes. Sometimes I notice the sounds around me. Sometimes I notice that I'm thinking a lot. Sometimes I notice that I'm not here very well, very much. I'm mostly somewhere else. I'm there and then mind, not here and now mind. And so I notice then I notice what it's like here, here to have a mind that's caught up in there and then. And then I'll, I usually I then I say it again here. And I say it again here, and it's not the hear of a command to a dog, <clears throat> but it's the hear of kind of like hearing, like you know, listening. I kind thought, of, oh, hear, hear. What's the hear? A um, little bit uh, like permission to be here. A reminder: What is this now? And if I do that enough times, do kind of a rhythm of here, and then kind of open to what appears. And then again, and a lot of what I notice is the mind being busy or agitated. That's when I find it most useful to do this. And then here is a person thinking about the future. Here is a person thinking about the past. And then what's this like to be thinking about the future? I mean, not not the causes and conditions of it so much, but what does it feel like to be thinking about the future? Then I'm here. Then I'm in the present moment. And after doing that for a while, my mind seems to settle. The sand settles. And then I tend to be here more, and then maybe I'll stop doing the here thing, and I'll just maybe stay with my breath or stay focused in some other way. I like this word here because it gives a lot of permission for me to be as I am at that time. It's not like I have to be someone different or or be a great meditator or be anything. I'm just here for this right now. So I offer that to you. And what I'd like to talk about uh, is more today as a Dharma talk is the importance of stories, and um, if you read books about Buddhism sometimes, and sometimes if you hear Dharma talks, you can, you could uh, hear these, uh, approach Buddhism as a set of teachings, abstract teachings. And sometimes when people come to Buddhism from other religions, one of the first questions they ask is, what is the teachings? As if, what's the creed? What's the belief that, what do you have to believe, like A, B, and C, and? And Buddhism doesn't have A, Bs, and Cs, but it has 1, two, threes, 3s, and 4s, and 5s, and 6s, and 7s, and a lot of lists that can seem somewhat abstract. And if you, you can engage in the you know, Four Noble Truths, the Five Hindrances, the Seven Factors of Awakening. And, and pretty soon, I think, <clears throat> you, can, you could get the sense that, oh, this Buddhism is pretty intellectual. It's all about the mind. But in fact, probably much more important in most of history of Buddhism is not the abstract teachings, theories, ideas, lists, but rather is the stories that Buddhists tell. And probably for most religions as well, the beliefs of the religion in terms of abstract ideas are far less important than the stories the religion tells. And in fact, what maybe one of the things that kind of... Defines someone as being religious. Not all all people, but you know, often defines people as religious. Maybe they don't think of themselves as this the definition of what makes them religious, but is that they're they're participating in some way or other in the stories of that religion, the stories that religion tell, and the stories tell a religion. The religion tells a story, and people repeat it a lot. They repeat it to themselves. And they begin kind of applying the story or seeing how that story is true in their own lives, where they see themselves going through that story in some way. And that part of being religious on a path like Buddhism could be, if you'd like, is to listen to the teachings, the stories that Buddhism teaches and not hold them at an arm's distance as something other from your life, but to consider how do they, how does this relate to your life? How does, how are you playing out the same story in some way? Um, what is a story? And, and what does a story mean for you? But what it means is not something abstract. It's nothing that I could tell you what it should mean. You have to engage the story to find the meaning for you. And if you engage in a story, like you engage in a poem, maybe every time you engage, something new appears, something new understanding, new depth, new wisdom happens. And so in the Buddhist scene, we tell stories. The Buddha was a great storyteller. He told a lot of stories. And in fact, some of the key experiences of his life are repeated as stories that we repeat to this day. The Buddha himself, when he looked at some of the key experiences of his life, Told it not in the abstract, you know, like this: "I saw the Four Noble Truths," which he did say at times. But he also said, "I saw the Four Noble Truths because I," ha-, and then he t- t- told the story of how he came to that. Stories are important, so I want to share with you a little bit the um, some of the classic stories of Buddhism and tell them in a particular way. You know, you know, of today. It could be that rather than what's important in, in Buddhism or religions is the story, maybe what's more important is the storytelling. Because it's in the storytelling that we discover something, we discover ourselves today. So I might tell you a story, but it's how you tell the story to yourself that is important. And I've been teaching long enough to know that. What I intend to get across, what I'm teaching, is not what necessarily people hear. And um, because it's, it's quite rich, because we take it all in and we process it and we relate it to ourselves and our lives and our experience, and the meaning becomes something different. So it's in the storytelling. And I'm sure that you'll tell stories. You'll listen to these stories and have your own telling of them. But maybe you'll find yourself in these stories, so I'd like to start the stories with uh, the end of the Buddha's life. <clears throat> he was he died when he was eighty, eighty-one years old, and we don't know much about the story of the end of his life. And it seems like uh, the people who recorded the teachings of the Buddha weren't that interested in, in the story of his life, so they didn't kind of record it in a kind of concise way. But if you piece some of the some of the evidence together. When the Buddha was 80 years old, he was residing in his home country, in the foothills of the Himalayas. And he had um, a friend. You get, I get the sense that the Buddha had a lot of disciples and people he was connected to. But in terms of his close friends, there was one man who was a, a king named King Pasanadi was also kind of a student of the Buddha, but they kind of seemed like they knew each other for a really long time. Uh, maybe they even knew each other when growing up, because they were the same age. Both of them were 80. And uh, so they shared a lot. Both of them were heads of... You know, Buddha was head of a monastic order. King Pasenadi was the head of a country. They consulted and talked over the decades that they knew each other. And when they were 80 years old, both of them, King Pasenadi came to see the Buddha, to pay his respect. And it seems that what happened, that when King Pasannari left, seeing the Buddha to go back to his home country, um, he was usurped from the throne. And so he went into exile, and he went to visit the neighboring king for refuge. The next thing we know the Buddha is in the town, the city, the capital of this neighboring king, and King Pasanati has died on his way to that capital. What seems to happen is that the Buddha, when he heard about the usurping, followed his friend, maybe to help him support him to do something. That's a guess. But you know, it takes a lot, I think, to motivate an 80-year-old man to walk hundreds of miles through northern India. Why would he do that? And then, as soon as he came to the capital, the story goes, he headed back home. He, I don't know, we don't know, we don't know why, but first he's up there at home, then he's in the capital, and then he's heading home. And it's, so he's heading home, it's 80, 81 year old man walking. And one of the stories that Buddhists like to tell, down through the centuries, the way they depict the Buddha, is usually they depict him in the prime of life. You know, like we have the statue of the Buddha up there. You know, he's, he's 35, 36, he's strong, healthy, radiant, and people like their founder to be radiant and beautiful and stately and sit up straight and have a straight back in the scriptures that survive, the Buddha describes himself as an old man, bent over. You know, when you get old, bent over, full of wrinkles. Is that a good way of knowing your founder of your great religion? Bent over old guy with wrinkles. We don't, we don't usually tell that story, but hidden away in the text, there's, that, there's such a realistic description, reasonable description. There's an old man. He was bent over and wrinkled. And... Anyway, he's walking, walking hundreds of miles across India, and he's heading home. His friend has just died. He's heading home. And he gets sick. They say that he ate something that was, uh, somehow didn't work for his body, so maybe something poisonous And he was heading home, and he recognized that he was dying. And what his intention of walking north and back to his home country is, we don't know. Why it was important for him to head home, we don't know. Whether he really cared whether he reached home or not, we don't know. But that's where he was heading. And when he was ready to die, when his time came... He lay down outdoors under two trees, majestic trees that exist in northern India. It's called the sal tree. He lay down underneath two of them and uh, had his last words that he spoke to his disciples. And then he began, he closed his eyes, and he touched back in to that experience he had as a six-year-old when he sat underneath the rose apple tree, the sense of well-being, peace, joy, collectedness, subtleness, that he remembered when he was six. So he touched into that again. And then what he'd learned in the course of his own practice was that he could go further with that experience of subtleness and collectedness and well-being. And so he followed that deeper that he knew, he followed that path of deeper, deeper peace and well-being. And when he came to the place of, of the same place of equanimity and peace, deep, deep subtleness and stillness, from which he saw freedom, from which he experienced freedom, in that place, he seemingly let go fully and let himself pass away. One of the things in telling the story this way is the buddha didn't make it home he was heading home he didn't make it he died first is that meaningful maybe if you tell the story a certain way understand it a certain way it's meaningful for me as i tell the story today because you don't know if you're going to make it home we don't know if we could. we have plans ideas aspirations for our lives you know, maybe it would have you know it would have been kind of perfect for him to maybe have, you know to complete his life where he began it. But he, the Buddha couldn't finish; didn't finish his plans. Didn't have you know? Could, didn't wasn't able to. He didn't make it home. Isn't that a powerful story? Didn't make it home. Idea. But even so, he died peacefully. He died at ease. He died feeling quite content. The story goes, he was he felt satisfied with having established his teachings, established his followers in the teachings and in freedom. He was satisfied and at peace with himself. And this juxtaposition of not getting home, but feeling at peace and settled, I think is, to me is quite an interesting. Because we can never, can we ever find ourselves in our lives perfect? Will our story ever be complete and perfect? Will it ever be just right? I don't know. But what the Buddha discovered is that even if a story can't be right, we can find we can be at peace with that. We can find some inner, deep, abiding sense of well-being. But it wasn't always that's the case for the Buddha. And so one of the stories that the Buddha tells, or Buddhism tells about the Buddha, maybe it was a myth, We actually have no record of the Buddha telling the story. And it appeared later in Buddhism uh, about himself. And that is that um, the Buddha was sequestered growing up because his father didn't want to have him see the human condition and, and the full challenges of the human life. So the Buddha lived kind of in palaces. He lived in, you know... Like, maybe the equivalence of the walled suburbs of Palo Alto or Beverly Hills or where you don't see what goes on in the wider world. And it's easy, I think, for many of us growing up in this culture here, uh, to one way or other live in, live not so connected to the full range of what this life can be about. Whether your privileged life, where you don't see um the poverty of our life around us or don't see sickness, old age and death. For me, I I didn't the first time I saw someone who had died was not in my ordinary life here in America, but uh was when I was eleven years old and I was uh traveling with my parents in Nepal in Kathmandu and back then in Kathmandu was they had only one asphalt street in Kathmandu which I don't know how many, it was like four blocks long back then. It was kind of stepping back into distant time almost. And I saw there a young girl. I was told she was a young teenager, 13, 14 years old, um, wrapped in a blanket, being carried by a group of adults down to the riverbank to be cremated. You know, So that was the first time I encountered something like that. It wasn't until I was 28 the next time that I saw someone who passed away. It's easy in our society. I know someone uh, who didn't see someone, a dead person, until she was 45 years old. Kind of amazing, right? And then only because she went to work as a chaplain in a hospital. And so in the emergency she saw someone. <clears throat> so the idea of being, you know, not seeing the fullness of life, and then there's people who see too much of that kind of fullness of life, but they don't see other parts. There, there are children who grew up in inner, inner, inner cities of the United States who have never been out in the woods, never been to the ocean. It's a big deal for them when someone finally brings them along and shows it to them. I wish there's a lot of people in our society, just in the Bay Area, who could have the experience of coming to Spirit Rock and seeing this. It's a way, That'd be kind of wake-up. They don't need to see sickness, age, old, and death. So the Buddha, the story goes, the Buddha lived sequestered, cut off. He was cut off from the fullness of life. He didn't really live a real life because he was kept from it. And somehow he managed to get himself out of the walled palace. And out of the walled palace, he saw for the first time at the age of 26, sickness, old, age, and death. He saw a sick person. But he didn't know what it was, a sick person, so he, had, he said to his companion, what's that? And the companion said, that's a sick person. And it's the nature of everyone sooner or later to get sick. And then they saw an old person. The Buddha said, what is that? It's an old person. It's the nature of everyone to get old, to age. And then to um, uh, they saw... A dead person. The Buddha said, what is that? And he was told the same thing. And this story is so important of the Buddha leaving the palace and seeing these sights that they're uh, recorded in our tradi- tradition as being uh, the heavenly messengers, divine messengers to see these things. They're so important uh, because for the Buddha, they were, they, he saw something very significant about the nature of this life that he had ignored, hadn't seen, and it woke him up. It motivated him. And then he saw the fourth messenger. And the fourth messenger was a renunciant, someone who had renounced the ordinary life and was walking through the streets. And he had a calm bearing, peaceful bearing. And the Buddha said to his companion, Who's that? And the companion said, That's a renunciant who's out Pursuing or engaged in their life to come to terms with these existential issues, come to terms with these fundamental issues that everyone has to face sooner or later. And the Buddha then decided that he would do that as well. Here in the modern West, the story for many people, the way they tell the story to themselves, when the Buddha left his family, a newborn child, his wife, that, um, you know, he was a no good. What's it called, the dad who leaves? Deadbeat. What? Deadbeat. Deadbeat. You know, and and people are kind of horrified. How could, you know, in the the modern West, you know, that story of a father leaving a family like that is, in our context and culture, is not a good deal, usually. But I like to tell the story a little differently. It's a different culture, and we can't understand what the culture was like. But I like to tell the story was that the Buddha... Was lived a life disconnected from life. And he didn't so much, he wasn't renouncing life. He was courageously plunging into life when he left the palace. Just as some people, just as our kids and children, sooner or later have to leave our palaces or our protection and our little, and have to somehow, sooner or later, see the wider world, engage in it, and plunge into it. Uh, even when parents are not quite ready for their kids to go off um, they they head off anyway and they go off to see what's there. So the Buddha I you know entered the world and he spent the next period of his life really in the world in a very full way and he spent years trying to find some resolution to the issues of sickness, old age and death, our relationship to it, how to be at peace with it, how not to be burdened by it, or oppressed by it, or frightened by it. And um, after years of practice, exploring different things, that's when he had the memory of himself as six years old. And I love this idea that he remembers an experience of well-being he had under the rose apple tree when he was six years old as being really what opened the door for Buddhism to, to be. For the Buddha to follow, find the, the path of practice, the resolution of his questions, to find um, the teachings that he found. The doorway, what opened the door for that was an experience he had when he was six years old. So maybe you don't need a PhD in Buddhism to understand Buddhism. Maybe it's not such abstract. Teachings and ideas, but it's something that's accessible in, even for a six year old, an entry point for some six year olds. A six year old heart has access perhaps to some feeling of some knowing. It's not an abstract, it's something experiential and immediate that's available. And it's a reference point, a reference point of peace, of well-being, of not being caught, reference points of being free, a reference point of being at ease, being calm, some kind of reference point like that. And then taking that reference point seriously, not succumbing to the other stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that other things are more important, I've, I've talked to people who have told me that in their family, uh, growing up, that uh, love was demonstrated or expressed, prove, proven, by worrying for each other. And it was really important to worry. Because if you didn't worry, then people felt you weren't connected, you weren't involved, there was no love. And so, then you're, that's it. Then you have a lifetime of worry in front of you. If that's the only way it can, you know, can feel connected. And there are a lot of stories we can tell ourselves but why it's important to be, to worry, why it's important to be afraid, why it's important to be angry, why it's important to feel bad about ourselves, why it's important that we're not good enough, you know, why it's important we should, you know, it's a lot of, we tell ourselves a lot of stories. And some of the stories we tell ourselves, because we're story makers, we're storytellers. We're not homo sapiens. We're homo storicos. (laughs) And it's even more so because the way we know, sapien, is usually through stories anyway. So what are your stories that you tell yourselves? What are the stories you're living in over day after day? You are living in stories. Guaranteed. The story that I'm not good enough or the story that I'm better than everybody else. The story that I'm, I don't belong here. The story that I do belong here. We tell ourselves stories. Lots of stories. And then we in- inhabit those stories. We believe those stories. Are they necessary? And so, one of the, one of the stories that Buddhists can explore is to have a reference point of peace, well-being, ease, calm, something like that. Doesn't have to be much. And use that to question, to ask the question, is it worth sacrificing my peace for what I'm doing right now, how I am right now? What is worth sacrificing your well-being, your peace, your calm for? What do you sacrifice it for? What do you give it up for? And then to look at that more deeply, what's the story you're telling yourself that says that it's worthwhile and appropriate to give up your well-being and peace at this moment? I mean, it's it's so simple as, you know, such a mundane, simple example that maybe you all recognize. And that question can be when you drive your car. I can be at ease driving my car and just like that, the light in front of me turns yellow and I sacrifice my ease to get through the intersection. What's more important, my ease or the intersection? And to ask that question. But how about in bigger things? Uh, you know, something goes wrong. The other day I had just two I had a little accident in my car where I broke the side view mirror by running crashing into it into a, a neighbor's tr- trash can. So that's interesting. And um, in the past I would have got all worked up. But is it worth while is it worth getting worked up? Worthwhile getting lost in the stories. Well now I have to go and figure out how to fix it and what a drag and where am I going to find the time and this is terrible and it's going to be embarrassing. I certainly can't tell anyone about it. Um, you know, or do I sacrifice my well-being for all those stories and thoughts? If you see you have the choice, if you see it going on, you can be free. So in Buddhism, we tell stories to help us understand how we're storytellers and then learn how to be wiser about the stories we tell, to understand which stories we don't have to tell anymore or which stories we might tell but we don't have to inhabit. And which stories are more useful to have? And so one of the stories that Buddhists tell is a story of the four heavenly messengers and how important and useful it is. There's a way of relating to the heavenly messengers, to sickness, old age, and death, and the renunciant example that can be liberating, can be motivating, can be meaningful. And there's ways to relate to those experiences and events that can do the opposite that can oppress us weigh us down which which story will you tell which story are you living in when you encounter these things so the buddha then um used that experience told a story remember the story of when he was a little kid used that as a reference point and then he entered into deeper states of well-being and at some point, when he was peaceful and still enough, um, he saw another story. And how, what, they, what it meant for him to see this story is interpretive. I don't know what it means that when he saw this story, but it was very important for him. And he saw, the story he saw, or the vision he had, was uh, himself over many, many lifetimes. He saw back, lifetime after lifetime. And he saw what he was like, the life he lived in those lifetimes. And the way it's described, it's very formulaic, as if you know the basic ideas of human life in each of those stories. Each of us share basic formulas of human life, you know, basic patterns. In this lifetime, who knows, over many lifetimes of being born, the challenges of growing up, periodically being sick, encountering sickness, old age and death perhaps leaving home, being on our own, being connected to others, not being connected to others, being insiders, outsiders. Many, many things can occur, certain things. And he saw this. So he saw kind of, I think, you know, a common humanity of all of us. And he saw how people live their lives, how they occur in their lives. And then he saw another story. And he, this is a particular frame with which to understand the common life that we all live. He saw that depending on how people cling, depending on how people, uh, the intentions that they act on, whether they act on their goodness or they act on their ill will, they act on their generosity or they act on their greed, they are, people experience different consequences in their lives. And that was really a key when he started seeing that the quality of the inner mind, the intention that the mind has, has huge consequences on our well-being. And when he saw that, then only then did he see the Four Noble Truths. Then did he, Then he saw that, yes, if you look deeply into the mind and see this common experience of human life, if you really can sit quiet and still and look deep into the roots of the mind... You can see that if you cling, you will suffer. And if you let go of that clinging, that suffering will fade away. And that was what liberated him, that deep insight. Because I guess what happened then when he saw that, then he was able to let go of his clinging. And when he let go of his clinging, then he was able to live fairly peacefully the rest of his life. So peacefully that when he died, he died peacefully. And as you know, there are religions in this world that put a lot of emphasis. A huge part of the story of the religion is how the founder dies. And I think, you know, we don't tell that story of the Buddha dying enough, I think. It's such a great story, example. Of, this is a one way to die, one way to live a life, to die peacefully. And I'll end with a story true story that I encountered here at Spirit Rock. It has to do with parenting and encountering the heavenly messengers and the story you you can tell yourself and how consequential it is. I've been teaching here for a number of years and there was a woman who came on retreat, nice practitioner. We had a good teaching student rapport. It's all very nice. And then, at some point, uh, she got cancer. So, went through treatments and all that, and didn't know how it was going to turn out. But at some point, uh, it was kind of clear that she was going to die. We didn't know how long she, was going to, she had, but that was the direction it was taking but, I think this is the big but, she had a child who was something like 11 years old. So that's a big challenge. You know you're dying and you have a child who's 11. And she was really angry. And she did a lot of work. She really tried to live and tried to cure herself. But at some point it was clear. This. She came to a retreat here and it was clear. She was, she was this, this was clear where she was going. We didn't know how long she had anymore. And she was really angry. Reasonable enough. So then I told her that how she died was going to have an impact on the life of her child for the rest of the child's life. she died angry, that was going to set a condition for the child's relationship to life and Relationships and many things for the rest of her life. And if she died peacefully, in an authentic way, that would create a very different condition for her child. And when I told her that, I kind of, you could see her light, some kind of light go on in her eyes. And um, then some months later, her husband told me that she had died. She died at home in bed, and when she died with her husband and her child there with her, when she took her last breath, the child went with her father outside into the garden and got a flower and brought the flower back and put it on the mother's chest. And I thought, this is good. She was able to do her death. In a way that hopefully worked well enough. Different condition if you died kicking and screaming and yelling and angry. She had a different story, she told herself. She encountered this the messenger in a way, and she was motivated. So here in Buddhism we tell ourselves a story of the heavenly messengers, the story of reference points important reference points for peace and freedom and well-being, stories of using those reference points to enrich our lives, to fill our lives, to find freedom in our lives, and stories of coming to terms with the really common experiences of our life that it's never going to be perfect. The Buddha didn't make it home. And if we're looking for our happiness and well-being and having everything in our life be perfect and work out, then perhaps we don't give the best teachings that we can to our children. And perhaps the best teachings we can give to our children is how we are when things don't work out the way that they should, or we wish they did, but we discover that there's something else here. There's freedom. There's freedom there's an open heart there's compassion there's love there's letting go and finding a way of being at ease with this life as it is so that's that this is my telling of the story and others will have different tellings of the story and it doesn't doesn't have to be that my telling of story is the best telling or the right telling or the true telling. I think what's really important from my point of view is that how do you tell the story? How do you live in those, these stories of Buddhism? And how do you live it in different days? And how do you use this as a reference point for your life? You can use other reference points. But if you're engaged in Buddhist practice, and this is a very important tradition for you to be practicing in, Um, You might see about becoming a better storyteller, a more frequent storyteller, until such a point you, you also see through the storytelling mind and discover the freedom that's also beyond telling stories.